Well, we come to the Bible reading this morning and it's in the Old Testament from the prophecy of Zechariah and it's chapter 4 and George is coming to read Zechariah chapter 4. passage is titled, A Vision of a Golden Lampstand. And the angel who talked to me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees on top of it, uh, by it, one on the right of the bowl and one other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the world, this is the word of the Lord, is irrevocable, not by might, nor by power, but by spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great hum the mountain? Before Israel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Israel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hands of the rubble. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from the golden oil have poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. Well, please turn with me to the passage in your Bible uh, that was read earlier. And we're going to be thinking about this uh, chapter under the heading, By My Spirit, Zechariah chapter 4, second last book of the Old Testament. And the theme, I think, of the chapter, and therefore of this message, is that God gave this vision to encourage his people to press on confidently in his work. And we'll see the basis of that, the confidence, uh, as we think about the prophecy given uh, to Zechariah for uh, the leader of the Jews, the Zerubbabel, Prince Zerubbabel, the, uh, the kingly figure. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of being wakened up suddenly from sleep, being deep in sleep and then oh, I don't know, the doorbell goes or the phone rings or somebody shakes you on the shoulder and says, quick, wake up, wake up. And when the interpreting angel woke Zechariah up from a deep sleep, he was sort of, what? What's going on? You know, what's happened? And, you know, rubbing sleep from his eyes, I suppose. 
and what he saw when he woke up got his adrenaline really pumping. A beautiful golden lampstand holding oil lamps with quite a remarkable plumbing system delivering oil to the lamps to feed them with an abundant supply and that reservoir of oil fed by two olive trees on each side of this, this vision. And um, I just realised I brought a picture of, the, of, uh, of, uh, of something and then left it in the car, so never mind. We'll, uh, we'll uh, have to do without it. Uh, Lindy's offering to go and get it for me. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, Dal. Thank you. Right. I went a bit of trouble printing it out, so I thought, uh, thanks, my love. Well, this was uh, the fifth of uh, eight visions that God gave to Zechariah, the prophet, uh, the period was the restoration from the exile in Babylon, probably around about 520 BC, a long time ago. And there were two prophets who prophesied like a team uh, prophets, Zechariah and Haggai. And the two books appear together, uh, the record of what they had to say uh, in the Old Testament. Haggai brought a call to the people to basically consider what they were doing and get on with the work of rebuilding the temple, a work that had fallen into, into um, had stopped, and the people had responded to Haggai's call. And Zechariah has um, a similar message, but a slightly different focus in Zechariah's prophecy, that it's not enough simply to have outward activity, that the hearts of the people needed to be engaged also in the work. That's in Haggai 2, but that's the focus particularly in the prophecy of Zechariah. And that's why his prophecy begins with a call to true repentance. An awakened heart is a repentant heart. That there for reference. Okay. Well, in uh, previous visions, though, there were, remember I said there were eight, and this is the fifth of them. Um, in the first three, God revealed through Zechariah his intention to rebuild his house, confirming what he'd said through Haggai. And this was, of course, the temple in Jerusalem, which was known as the house of God, because God was pleased to come and dwell there in the midst of his people, to be present for them and with them, um, and that's an important aspect. It's interesting, though, that the word house has a kind of double meaning, in, um, both in English, Hebrew and Greek. Uh, a house can refer to the people as well. So, for example, the house of David <coughs> is the household of David, the family of David. So, when it speaks of God building his house, we've got a kind of deliberate ambiguity there. But in particular, at this juncture of uh, church uh, history, God was talking about building this temple where he would reveal his presence and receive his people through the offering of sacrifices. In the New Testament, we read, Jesus says, I will build my house. And there he's not talking about physical buildings, he's talking about God's family. And Jesus is the one who builds God's family. And indeed, it says in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. 
we are his house, not a physical building, but the people, God's people, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Well, in the immediately preceding prophecy, the fourth one in the chapter 3, Zechariah sees Joshua. Now, Joshua was the high priest at the time and he sees Joshua, the high priest, wearing dirty clothes which was, of course, a no-no for a priest, uh, certainly the high priest. Um, he had to be beautifully arrayed in clean and, uh, and uh, in a beautiful clothing. But uh, in this vision, Zechariah sees him otherwise. And this raised the question, you see. This, the, the, the filthy clothes represented the filth of sin. And the question that comes up is, well, how can a sinful person approach God? Whether he's the high priest, priest, or whether he's one of the people, or whether he's you or me. How can a sinful person, dirty with our sins, be accepted by God? And that's exactly the basis of Satan's accusations. Now, we didn't read chapter 3, but please do read it later if you're um, inclined. But Satan makes accusations against Joshua. He's uh, the accuser says that he's standing at the right hand uh, to accuse Joshua. And God answers the accusations with three things. He says, first, it's not a matter of human qualification, but of God's calling. That's in verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And then secondly, God is able to take away sin and Joshua was standing, verse 3, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him and to him he said, behold I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments, pure clothing. And then thirdly, God will provide an atonement the sin, enabling him to take away the sin and the guilt of it. And so that's the reference in verses 8 to 10 to the branch. Here are now of Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I'll bring my servant the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So there is God's ability to take away sin, which is still true today. You want your sin dealt with, you must come to God to do it for you. But what about this fifth vision which we come to now? I'll just put it into a little bit of context there, which Zechariah saw uh, during one night. We saw all of the visions during one night, but uh, he sees this one uh, of this um, golden lampstand. And it's a message that's just as relevant to us in the 21st century as it was back then in the 6th century BC. It's a message that speaks to us, that God speaks to us, and that we're to listen to. It reveals the secret of the work of God in and for his kingdom. And it is this, simply summarised, verse 6, by my spirit, says the Lord. So 
So let's keep that in mind. By my spirit, says the Lord. But we do need to delve in and just see what the symbolism of this vision that Zechariah was given uh, of this golden lampstand and see what it's all about and how that relates to by my spirit, says the Lord. So my first point, verses 1 to 5, the vision. (coughs) What Zechariah saw was a menorah, a seven-branched golden lampstand. And help my, given my wife's help, uh, there's a picture of an, a menorah. Actually, after I printed that, um, I noticed something. There's the Star of David, but underneath, do you see the cross there? I thought, what's that doing there? And then when I read the script that was attached to the image, I discovered that this menorah, this lamp, um, was a Messianic Jewish one. So not only do you have the Star of David representing Israel, but you've got the fish representing Christianity. Why does a fish represent Christianity? Uh, You can ask me afterwards if you want. I'll come back to that if you want to. So, alright, so he sees this um, very fancy uh, lampstand with uh, seven lamps and so on. Now, if you want to see a description of the one that stood in the tabernacle originally, um, it's in Exodus chapter 25. It talks about the furnishings of the tabernacle in chapter 25 of Exodus and amongst those are a description of this, this menorah, this lampstand that was to be put in the holy place. But what did it represent? What was it about? Why was Moses told to put this lampstand, and subsequently Solomon had one in the the temple, and then another one was to be put in the temple that was being rebuilt at this time. What did it represent? Well, we're not, I don't think we're clearly told anywhere. But let me tell you what I think it was. (coughs) I think it was a stylized burning bush. The burning bush from which God spoke to Moses. Remember how Moses was out in the desert looking after his father-in-law's and became his father-in-law's sheep and he came upon this burning bush (coughs) and God said, put your shoes off your feet because the place in which you stand is holy ground and as Moses approached this bush a voice spoke to him from the bush and it was the Lord and we won't go too much into that just now but it was a very significant thing that this bush present to Moses was the presence of God. God was somehow associated with this bush such that it was burning but not consumed, not burned up. Did you know this was the origin of one of the symbols that Presbyterians use, the burning bush. And there's a little Latin motto that comes under the burning bush. It says, Nec consume batur tamen. Nec tamen consume batur, which means, but it was not consumed. So what's that about? Well, it's saying that this bush represents the people of God. It represents the people of God with whom God is present, such that they give out light, such that they burn with worship and honour and praise for him. Burning, but not burnt up. So the church fulfills that as well. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. (coughs) To his disciples, to us, the church. 
We're not burned up by being the light of the world, but we are continuously, and we are to be continuously, shining for God's glory. That's great, isn't it? God shines through his people. Now, what Zechariah actually saw in this vision was a much more complex uh, menorah than that one. Um, It was a special deluxe version. You could say it was a candelabra by Rolls-Royce, if you wish. But on the top, there was an oil reservoir with seven pipes going down to the seven lamps. And either side, there was this, uh, these two olive trees that were feeding olive oil into the reservoir, which was then by means, uh, by, by means of these pipes uh, keeping the lamps burning. So there was an ample supply of oil, and this thing was not to go out, it was to keep burning. Now, the old original one in the tabernacle had to be tended to, the oil had to be re- recharged, the wicks had to be trimmed, and all the rest of the process. But this particular lampstand is burning, burning, burning without ceasing. And there are these two olive trees continuously feeding golden oil into the, into the menorah so that it doesn't stop burning. We'll come back to those two olive trees a little bit later. So those are the details of what Zechariah saw uh, in this vision which God gave him for the king, for Zerubbabel, which he was to relate to the king. The rest of chapter 4, up to verse 5, explains this mysterious vision. So we'll turn to that now and uh, consider what the explanation is. Because Zechariah was quite confused, and we might be too, as to what's going on here. Uh, In verse 4, he says, I said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And Zechariah said, No, my lord. So, then he got the explanation which we're going to get as well. So, the second point this morning, the great task confronting Zerubbabel and his people um, was, and God makes provision for that, and we're looking particularly at verses 6 to 10. The reconstruction of the temple of God was a daunting task. It wasn't just a matter of getting the materials together and constructing this building, it was to do so in light of the fact there was simmering opposition to their progress amongst the people of the land. It seemed like it could be a very difficult task. And so what God says to Zerubbabel, the leader of the people, through Zechariah is, hey, it's not by your might or power that this will be accomplished, but through my spirit. That's a truth too easily forgotten, isn't it? Today, by us. You know, we, if things are going well in a church, we might say, oh, this is because we've got a great pastor who can preach and look after people and teach and we've got a great bunch of elders who who help him and serve us and we've got all these programs running, we've got a healthy Sunday school, Bible study groups, you know, the whole box and dice. And we can say to ourselves, you know, pat ourselves on the back and say, we're doing a great job and, you know, and all glory be to us, uh, I mean to God. <coughs> or if we are not like that and we are perhaps struggling a little bit, and maybe we can identify with that, and we see another church growing, we say, oh dear, if only we had a minister like that in our church, 
Well, only we had a good bunch of elders like they've got and we've only got, you know, one or two or whatever. Or if only we had these programs that they're running, then maybe things could be different and we could attract people in, we could have some young families join the congregation and, and so on. It's a real temptation, I have to say, to think that the means that we can produce will somehow inevitably lead to results. And sometimes you hear people teaching this in churches, you know, put the coin in the slot and that will pop the goodies. Um, It's sort of mechanical or something. Well, I would suggest that these are deceptive ideas. They detract from what is the true source of power and growth and strength and stability and love and all the other gifts of the Spirit, which of course is God himself through his Holy Spirit. That's why Zerubbabel and the people needed to be reminded of this central truth in this chapter. Verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, not by your human contrived schemes and things which may be good in themselves, but don't put your trust in those. Not by might nor by power, not by celebrity sports people visiting the church to speak about Jesus. There may be a place for that, but that's not where it's going to come from. The growth is going to come from the Spirit of God, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's something that we need to remember as a congregation. We need to repent of idolising the notion that all we really need is a good minister. Or all we really need is um, a few more elders to do what uh, it needs to be done in the congregation. Or all we need is some person to run a kids program or a Bible study or whatever it is. There may be a place for those things. But our hope is not to be in them but in God who works through those things, of course, but the thing itself is not guaranteed to produce the result. What produces results is the work of God. So that that means that God's work can go ahead without a full-time minister, maybe, such as your situation here in Hosatankari. You have the blessing of a retired minister in the congregation, but he's not full-time. You can't expect him to be. But God can still do great things for the Foster Curry Presbyterian Church as we all rely on the work of God's Spirit. More of that shortly. So the positive message of this vision that's given to Zechariah for Zerubbabel is nation and temple building. And for us it is the building up of Christ's church, the temple of God, the house of God. It's a gigantic task. There's much opposition. There are those who want to see the church fail and tear itself apart. There were some in the, amongst the congregation here at this time, back in 520 BC, They'd been alive years before before the exile of Babylon and they'd seen the Temple of Solomon in all its glory 
And it was a magnificent building from all accounts in scripture. But the whole thing had been torn down by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. But there were men, uh, old men, uh, who remembered. And as they saw the construction of this new temple, they were dismayed and discouraged because it was nothing compared to the glorious temple that had been there before. And they thought, well, you know, this is pretty basic and ordinary. And this dampened their enthusiasm and that spread. And it was one of the factors, I'm sure, that discouraged people from getting stuck into the work. Because people were saying, oh, you know, this is not like the days of the Puritans, I mean the days of Solomon, or the days of the evangelical revivals in the 19th, 18th century, or the days of Spurgeon, oh, we're not living in days, we're living in days of small things. Well, we'll come to the small things in a minute. And to God's people, God said through Haggai, hey, wake up, consider your ways. And through Zechariah, God says to the people, not by mind, nor by power, but by my spirit, this temple will be built. <coughs> so God has these, this word for pessimists and uh, negative thinkers. Who are you, O great mountain? Because Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. <laughs> and he shall bring forward the top stone, that's the capstone at the top of the temple, he shall bring it forward with shouts of grace to it. Grace! <coughs> it's God's grace that results in the completion of the work. Not merely human effort. But human effort is required because God is at work in his people. So, God is saying to them, God is saying to us, don't be discouraged. Don't look on outward things don't look at the opposition, don't look at your own weakness and incapacity or as you perceive it. Remember who is really doing the building here. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And the grace of God will put the capstone on the temple. He will complete his work that he has begun in each life, in his church. Is that still true today? I would suggest to you that it still is. It's still true in 2024. God has not changed. His way of working may be slightly somewhat different, but it hasn't changed fundamentally. He's doing his work to build his house through his Son, who is God. The historical characters of the high priest Joshua and the prince Zerubbabel were types or symbols of someone still to come. The one referred to in chapter 3 as the branch and this version of the Bible puts out a capital B there to remind us who that is the branch of David and John wrote about him, about Jesus these words in John 3.34 For he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. He gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son 
and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe this, obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And it's this Jesus, full of the Spirit, and able to give the Spirit, as he did at Pentecost, this Jesus is building his church. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God's temple will be built. So that's why we shouldn't, as verse 10 alludes to, we should not despise the day of small things. Verse 10 says, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line, a builder's tool, in the hand of Zerubbabel. But how does God build his church? It's one thing to say and to affirm as we do that it's not by might nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord. How does that work out? Well, the message of Pentecost is that God, that Jesus sends the Spirit of God into his church to accomplish his purposes and to empower his church to carry those purposes forward. He uses weak people, powerless in ourselves, to do anything of spiritual significance. He uses the weak people like us to accomplish his amazing purposes, to save the world, to save his people, to save the creation eventually. And he uses people like you and me. Yes, he sometimes raises up great ones amongst us, and praise be that that be the case. We should acknowledge that and thank him for them. But most of the work of the Lord that's going on is being done by ordinary people like us. How can we do it? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The same power that raised up Jesus from the dead is at work in this congregation. That's true. Be encouraged. Zerubbabel must work, yes. He must lay the foundation, he must wield the plumb line, he must carry the capstone in the end of the day to complete the work. But in all these things, God's at work by his spirit. As Paul exhorts us, work at your own salvation with fear and trembling, for why? God is at work in you. That's the mystery of God's taking forward his kingdom, building his church. He works through weak, seemingly powerless people to bring about a glorious conclusion that will be to his glory forever and ever. Are you becoming discouraged or even cynical and bitter? It's time for us all to take a spiritual health check. Where are you looking? Are you looking to human capacity and ability and resources? Or are you looking to divine capacity, ability and resources? Time to lift up our eyes to Jesus and then redouble our efforts in his kingdom, not to despise the days of small things. For it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Well, concluding with my third point, uh, the good oil 
verses 11 to 14. I said I was going to come back to the two olive trees <coughs> that were feeding the reservoir of oil. Uh, this is another aspect of the vision that puzzled Zechariah in verses 11 to 12. Um, verses 11 to 12. I'll skip over verse, uh, the end of verse 10 because it's referred to in the previous chapter, the seven eyes, um, which are constantly keeping eye on the world, or seven of them. Verse 11, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees in the right and the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? Zechariah said, No, not a clue, not what it is. No, my lord, he says, verse 13. And the angel replies, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Two sons of oil, literally in the original language. Abundant olive oil, sources of abundant olive oil for the people. These are the ones set there by the Lord of the entire earth. Why should Zechariah have realised what these represented? Because the answer was close at hand <coughs> to him. These two olive trees represented the prince and the priest and the high priest in their roles of leading the people in the worship and in the service of the Lord. It was referenced to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, the king and the priest. You know, there are two great evils to be overcome in the life of a, a believer. There is the need for atonement, the forgiveness of our sins but there's also the need for the ongoing ability to put off sin and put on righteousness to be sanctified to use the technical term because not only are we guilty we're also polluted by sin so we need both those aspects to enable us to do what God wants us to do now in the days of Abraham going way back those two functions were united in one person a chap called Melchizedek I'm not going to digress onto that for too long, but he was both a king and a priest. But when we come to the law of Moses years later, God separates those two functions into the king, who is subsequently going to be king, it wasn't a king in the time of Moses of course, except God, uh, and the priest. The functions of king and priest were separate. Moses acted as a kind of a king under God. And then Jesus came, and what happened? The two functions were merged again. They were put together again by God so that he is both the high priest and the king after the order or in the way of Melchizedek as we read in Hebrews. And it's by his work that the work is accomplished. The one who has made atonement for our sins on the cross, risen glorious and now reigns as the Lord of creation, King of kings, and Lord of Lords. And the secret of the church's power is to be seen in this one, in Christ, represented by those two olive trees, the two aspects of his work, and the work of the Spirit that he sends into the world to accomplish that work. That fruitfulness and power flows from the one who has made atonement for sins, but also now reigns and rules over all things for his church, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, let me finally conclude with a few words. We've seen something of how these great truths apply to us today. Zechariah's vision may at first sight seem a bit puzzling, but when we listen carefully to the understanding given in this chapter, we see so much of God's wisdom and mercy. And we see there, in a kind of a shadowy form, if you like, what he has accomplished in Jesus, the Saviour of sinners. God's church will grow, not because of man's efforts, but because of God's grace. Jesus fills his church with his own unconquerable life through the Holy Spirit, a gift in which every believer shares, not just those who speak in tongues, for example. But what encouragement we have here, that the work is done by us, but by the enabling of the Lord, so that ultimately it's his work, not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. But does that mean we sit back and do nothing? Not at all. Because the Lord Jesus works through us by his spirit. We build the church as he builds the church through us. What a privilege to be involved in that process, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work in us. How will God's work be done? Christians are called to work and to pray. And in the end, the secret of growth is summed up in verse 6. A word to Zechariah, a word to Zerubbabel, and a word to you and me. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. (coughs) Almighty God, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, We thank you that you are at work in this world, accomplishing your purposes for your glory. So whatever things we may be able to do by your enabling, you receive the glory for it, not us. To you, O Lord, be the glory in all things. But Lord, please enable us and motivate us and inspire us to be busy in the work of telling the gospel to others, encouraging each other, promoting promoting the fear of God and the love of God, caring for the needy, caring for all people, but especially revealing to others the precious gift of salvation through trusting Jesus. And we pray this not just for ourselves, but for all your church, that we may not be distracted from the main things, that we may be much in the main things and not distracted by secondary things. Lord, do great things for your glory in us and through us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.